The preaching of God's Word is here, Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. So we'll hear those verses again, Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. This passage holds forth once more the riches of so great and merciful a Savior is that even when His very disciples are pushing others back, He's, as it were, saying, no, no, let them come. You notice the occasion of the text is that there are those who are bringing the smallest of children. The word in verse 15, translated infants, uh, is expressive of those who are still nursing. And so newborns and little ones. And you'll notice that when Christ says in his response, suffer little children, it's an expression that includes all manner of little children. It's the expression, you'll remember, when that wicked king did give commandment to kill all the children two years and younger, this same word is used. So two years and under. It's not a child who has grown and has all of the faculties developed and so on, but children from the earliest days of their very existence. And notice, they're bringing these infants to Christ. And it says that He might touch them. A touch of divine and gracious intimacy, which is everywhere shown in the Scriptures to be a blessed uh, touch. He often touches those whom He healed. You remember that when John was exiled in Patmos and he falls at the presence of the glorified Christ, that Christ comes and He lays His hand upon him and says, Fear not, it is I. It's an assuring touch. In fact, in the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, we see this to be bound up with prayer. And so it was that they were bringing their children unto Him that He might touch them and pray for them. And likewise in Mark's Gospel, that He might bless them. So it's not some sentimental, as we'll see, uh, moment, but an earnest desire that these little ones would be blessed of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples then reprove them and they rebuke them. You'll notice verse 15. So these who are following Christ are saying, No, no, don't trouble the Master with these little ones. He's too important. We've got business to take care of. There are big things, big and important things to deal with. You see that the disciples don't fully learn the lesson because later on in this very chapter, when it is there is a blind man crying out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. Verse 39 says, They which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace, saying, Stop it. Don't bother him. He's on his way to deal with his work. And yet Christ again reproves and says, No, no. He stops and says, Bring him unto me. So what we see here is the disciples' error in mistaking the intent and purpose of Christ. And thankfully, Christ corrects that when He says, suffer the little children 
to come unto me. That is, allow them, bring them to me. He says, forbid them not. So he's saying positively, they are to come to me. And negatively saying, you're not to forbid them to do so. And he says then, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now it's important to understand the connection between 16 and 17 because he transitions. He says then, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Verses 15 and 16 give the foundation for what verse 17 is saying. We have to understand, in other words, verse 16 regarding literal little children so that we can then understand what he's saying regarding all people and how they come to Christ. In other words, these verses are not saying, listen, the little children is just an example. I'm not really interested in the little children. I'm just trying to give you uh, sort of an expression and uh, a, a very lived out example of what all people are to be doing. No, he's dealing with the truth of little children, infants, And they're being brought to him in verses 15 and 16 saying, the kingdom of God belongs to them. Notice, it's not just the kingdom of God belongs unto people like infants. He says, of such, of the little children, the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is for infants. It's for these helpless and dependent beings that have no ability to care for themselves that have no ability to do so much as anything for themselves. My kingdom belongs to them. It's theirs. It's for them. When it is we understand that, then we're able to understand verse 17. And so in order to understand verse 17, well, we have to give attention to these first two verses in this passage. In other words, Christ is putting forth two different, though intimately related, truths. The first of which is that infants or children as infants or children should be brought to Christ for His blessing. That is a discreet and a clear lesson in verses 15 and 16. And then built upon that is this related lesson that all are to be like infants in receiving the kingdom of God. In other words, there's not a single truth here There are two related truths. Infants are to be brought to Christ for His blessing. And all men must be like infants in order to receive His blessing. And just to foreshadow a bit as well, notice how this helps us understand what's going on in the next passage, 18 and following. This man comes asking a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's as if... What's being helped, or how we're being helped here, is God saying, Hear what I'm saying, and now see an example of one who gets it wrong. Here comes a man saying, What am I going to do? What must I do? Everything you've just said, I've done all of it already. And then Christ says, Go and sell all that you have. And by consequence, what would that mean? He would have to become utterly dependent, he would have to become like an infant. He could no longer rest on his works. He could no longer rest on his actions. He would have to be one who falls before Christ with no virtue and merit of his own, no wealth, no prosperity of his own, and be one who solely depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the thread through the whole of it. And then notice Peter will say, Lo, we've left all 
and followed thee. So you see the thread continues. And Christ says, listen, all who have done this for the kingdom of God's sake will receive many more, manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. They'll receive the kingdom of God in glory. So there is a thread that goes through all of this, which in many ways begins with this historical moment of infants being brought. So what we'll do then is look first today at the primary teaching, verses 15 and 16, and Lord willing, next week, look at the consequent that applies to all. So today we look at this teaching of Christ that all infants as infants, all children as children, are to be brought to Christ in their childhood that He may bless them, to which point that follows, we will give attention next week. So today, consider then three things. Firstly, Christ's blessing, what it is. So what is Christ's blessing which they seek? And secondly, Christ's blessing, proper subjects. Who is it that is to be brought to Christ for His blessing? And thirdly, Christ's blessing, the way of pursuing it. How is it that we pursue the blessing of Christ? So firstly then, Christ's blessing, what it is. Notice the expression again. They're bringing Him, they're bringing unto Him infants, nursing children and young ones, that He, Christ, would touch them. So this is something that Christ commends. He doesn't say, well, they're misguided, but we'll just bear with their misunderstanding. Notice He says, with reference to that, suffer little children to come unto Me and forbid them not. So their desire is a good desire. It's a right desire. What they're seeking is precisely what they should be seeking. And then he helps us understand what it is that they're seeking. For of such is the kingdom of God. In other words, we can look at this by the passage and joining other passages as well and see firstly what the blessing isn't. What it is they're not seeking. With Christ's commending of them, we can rule out several things. They're not seeking something superstitious. They're not coming and saying, well, I don't have really any grounding for this, but I guess it would be good if I could do this. That's the heart of superstition. Superstition is the unfounded acts of devotion. It is the, perhaps taught through custom, or tradition, or one dreaming it up of his own heart. Superstition is not just all the things that we think about as witchcraft and all these kinds of things, but it's any act of devotion that is unfounded upon the Word of God. That's superstition. Any act of devotion in this building, by these people, which is done without the warrant of God's Word, is superstition. It's false. It's what Paul condemns in Colossians when he says, look, some say touch not, taste not, handle not. And he acknowledges it has an appearance of wisdom. It seems to be ascetic and self-denying and rich in wisdom. But he says it has no power to the satisfying of the flesh. It's after the doctrine and commandments of men. But it lacks the vital and fundamental uh, guidance, which is God's Word. So when these are bringing 
infants to the Lord for blessing, they're not seeking something that they've conjured up in their own minds. They're not just thinking to themselves, well, I don't really know if I should, and, well, other people are doing it, so I'll go about and do it. Rather, it is something well-founded and instructed by the Word of God, as we'll see. We can also say that negatively, it is not a sentimental desire. Christ had no time for sentimentality, the sitting down and these oozing feelings of some unfounded warmth, and so on, because he says, of such, to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's not sentimentality. That's of the highest order of our calling. The kingdom of God is the most dignified, most enduring, most established thing that there is. And so we rule those things out. They're not seeking just the ability to say, well, you know, we had this very sweet and uh, uh, pleasant time, and it was so cute and so happy, and we got pictures of it afterwards, and we'll always remember it, and we were dressed up and all of these things. It's none of that. They're not coming out of superstition, but they're also not coming out of sentimentality. Well, you know, grandfather, he did it this way, and it was a sweet time, and I had it this way, and it was a sweet time, and now my children are going to have it this way, and it's a sweet time. It's none of that. Positively, we can say this. They are seeking the blessing of Christ upon these children. So you can see this in Mark's Gospel more clearly. So in Luke's Gospel, it's simply recorded that they brought the children that he might touch them. You can see more fully in Mark's Gospel, the parallel to this in chapter 10. Notice similarly, verse 13, they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Notice now verse 16. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. You see, what's taking place is that Christ is pronouncing and declaring His blessing upon these children. Now we have to understand something more of what that means. At the end of each service, we have what some may think is merely custom or tradition when we have the benediction, the blessing of God's people. But this is no mere custom or tradition. It is the scriptural way of God toward His people. So you see it in the Old Testament, you see in the New Testament, the epistles many times end with it. You see Christ doing it to His people. You see the apostles doing it to the people of God and so on. What is a blessing? Well, it's more than a prayer. It has some similarities to it, but it's a pronouncement. It's a testimony of God's willingness to provide. It is a declaration of the goodness and mercy of God held forth. And so when Christ takes up these infants and He places His hand upon them and says, or it says that He blesses them, He's declaring His goodwill toward them. He's testifying to them of His mercy and grace and holding forth the promise and assurance of His kingdom to them. Now there are some who then go 
in one way that's off. And they say, thereby, he's saving them. Well, we do not deny that Christ is able to save infants. We see, of course, one clear example of the same in John the Baptist, who from his mother's womb responded with a wondrous joy at the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have no hesitation in affirming as much as that. But you can see throughout the Scriptures patterns of God blessing His people. And it doesn't mean that He is, by uh, effect, they're saving His people. So remember, the people of God and Israel are gathered, and on one mountain are what? The blessings of God's covenant pronounced. And on the other mountain are the curses of God's covenant pronounced. And what God is doing, as it were, is He's uh, placing His people within the context of His covenant, saying, I'm coming to you, and I'm saying to you, I hold forth everlasting salvation for you to embrace. Yes, to you. But I'm also coming to you and saying, if you turn from what I hold forth, the curses of God shall fall out upon you with unending uh, misery. So in other words, the blessing that Christ is giving is not some uh, automatic salvation, as it were, but it's an intimate assurance that He will save all who embrace Him. It is a provision of great blessing that transcends uh, the things of mere infant dedications, and other such things as these. It's actually not so much one dedicating a child to God as it is seeking God to, as it were, dedicate that child unto salvation. It's a bringing a child helpless in himself saying, Oh God, if ever this child shall know the riches of salvation, it will be insofar as you, the divine and gracious God, do bless, and so bless this one. In other words, it is a heightening of the promises of salvation, and it is a higher call to faith. It's a seeking of the Lord's good blessing upon His people. You can see something of this when in Revelation 1, there's John, as mentioned, exiled, and he falls at the feet of Christ as dead. And what does Christ do? Notably, He places his hand upon John. And what does he say? He says, fear not, it is I. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. I was dead, but behold, I live forevermore. He's giving assurances to John. He's comforting John. He's testifying of his goodness to John, of his salvation to John. And he's calling upon John to embrace those promises by faith. Well, the same is true At the benediction of a service, for instance, or any time such is given, there is God pronouncing and declaring what He holds forth to the people. And He's saying, unto you I call to believe My promise. Unto you I call to embrace My blessing. And so, it is a great provision of mercy holding forth Christ's great goodness to save His people who would believe Upon him. Now, notice then Christ's blessing the proper subjects. Text is quite clear. They brought unto him also infants. And Mark's gospel helps confirm this fundamental point. Christ is not just using infants 
as a life lesson to adult believers. He's not just, as it were, saying, yep, see how infants are little and dependable upon everything, or upon one for everything. You better become like they. There's truth to that second part, as we'll see. But remember, Mark's Gospel says, he took them up. Who? He didn't take up these 30 and 40-year-olds and bless them. He took up the nursing children and he blessed them. He pronounced his goodness and his grace unto these little ones. Now think of this, you know, infants, there's much dignity because they're uh, truly human, fully human, from the womb. They have the dignity of being a human person. This is what makes abortion so wicked and cruel, that it kills and, yea, murders one who is human. And yet we don't make the mistake to say that they're fully developed in all of their faculties, We know that. An infant comes and they babble and they groan and they cry and they smile at times for seemingly no reason. And they're learning about the world around them. They're learning to understand. Their understanding is coming to them. They don't have the development of reason where they can sit and ponder and think and commit themselves to things. They are dependent upon others to provide for them. And in fact, to interpret for them what's troubling them. And so a child who has no clue what's going on but pain starts crying. And now the mother and father have to look. And they don't say, well, you know, can you just tell me what's going on? The parent has to do all of the interpreting. They look over the child, you know, is uh, uh, this out of sorts? Is there pain? Is there a wet diaper? What's going on? They have to interpret all How long has it been since this child ate? Is there a fever? What's going on, right? The parents have to do all of the interpreting because the child has no capability of sitting down and reasonably explaining what's going on. And frankly, this doesn't come till several years later because when they're infant or young children, they can talk. The parents still have to learn to sit down with the child and say, okay, I see why you're doing this, but let's think through this. And the parents cultivating the ability to think reasonably through situations. Why do we make this point? Because what Christ is getting at is, and hear this well, these unreasonable infants, these infants who don't understand what the sun is, what a cloud is, what the grass is, who don't understand what a name is, these infants who don't have their reason developed and their understanding and their discernment, Christ has no hesitation to take them up and pronounce divine blessings upon them. In other words, there's not this period of time that one must pass through that then makes them, as it were, proper recipients of Christ's blessing. And so you'll notice the word indicates the smallest of children. We can say a couple things about them. They are fully dependent If you were to take an infant child and, oh, the horror of such stories that plague our history, and you were to leave them in a well-provided-for house, don't put them in the wilderness, put them in a house with bottles and formula and diapers and everything that they would need to survive, a bed and everything else, and leave them there, what would happen? Well, the child with the whole house stock full of everything an infant needs to live would die. Because their bodies can't move, they can't 
really think through situations. They would be crying, perhaps. They would sleep, perhaps. They would wriggle around, perhaps. You see, an infant, though full of all of the stockings of what's required for life in this world, is yet fully dependent upon one to take them up and nurse them. One to take them up and clean them. One to put them down when it's time to sleep. One to wake them up and so on and carry them here to there and move them and protect them from danger. And it's interesting that Christ is said in Mark 10 to pick up the children in His arms. He doesn't say, let, you know, come to me little children. He takes them up Himself and blesses them. The point is, they are fully dependent not just upon parents for all the outward things, but they're fully dependent upon God for all spiritual and gracious things. There's nothing, I mean, we can literally say this, there is nothing they can do except sit and cry and sleep and breathe. And yet even these things would quickly come to an end unless someone someone were to take them up. And so one thing we can say is that the proper subjects for Christ's blessing are those who are fully dependent. Infants are fully dependent. This will lead into the next point of verse 17, but notice that of infants. Now, this is important because sometimes there are those who say about infant baptism, which this passage is not talking about, but notice the connection. They'll say, why would you present a child for baptism? Because they don't understand what's going on. They aren't there of their own will and desire. They're literally carried up to the front of the church. They're literally taken by the minister. And words are spoken which they have no comprehension and understanding of. And then water is applied to them which they didn't choose. Things are done for them which they don't understand. Therefore, say some, that is illegitimate. Brethren, notice the connection. If that's illegitimate, do you not see it? What Christ is doing is illegitimate. If it were demanded that the child understands what's going on, if it were demanded that the child come of his own volition, if it were demanded that they be in their right and full use of uh, reason and so on, before they are brought to Christ for the blessing, then what Christ is doing is illegitimate. Now, certainly we know that that's not the case. Christ is correcting His disciples. He's saying to His disciples, no, no, no. I see what you're doing. For whatever reason, you're thinking that they shouldn't come. But I'm telling you, bring them to Me. They need My blessing. It's afforded to them by My mercy. And so, because one is fully dependent, does not make one, as it were, disqualified from being brought to Christ for His blessing. In fact, Christ is making a point that that's precisely the one who needs His blessing. Notice as well, the proper subjects here of infants are those who are brought by others. Notice verse 15, it's quite simple. They brought unto Him also infants that He would touch them. If you could look at the infant at that moment, the infant would know nothing but I'm being carried by a nurse or mother or father through this and I don't understand what's going on and there's shouting going on and perhaps the children are crying and they're not being, as it were, desired to be quiet and so on. You hear this 
uh, uh, issue with the disciples, saying, no, no, don't come. And then a voice says, no, no, suffer them to come. The children know nothing of what's going on. They're merely passive in the whole experience. There's no activity of themselves. So they're fully dependent, and in their dependence, others are bringing them to Christ. They're brought by others to Christ for His blessing. And Christ commends this. In fact, He reproves His disciples who say, don't bring them. Whatever the reasoning in their mind, whether it's, well, he's too busy, he's got bigger things to do, more important things to do, or if they're looking through the eyes of some and saying, what could these children possibly benefit by this blessing? Christ says, you've misunderstood. My kingdom belongs to such as are infants. Now, we ought to say something about that. This doesn't mean that every infant is in the kingdom of God. What it does mean is that there are infants who are in the kingdom of God. And Christ is pleased to declare that unto those who are brought to Him. Do you see something for a moment? They're proper subjects because Christ is declaring they have a right to His kingdom. They have a right to being proclaimed citizens of the kingdom. You can see the analogy, of course, in civil things. A child who is born in this nation is a citizen of this nation. They don't have to pass through time and eventually say, you know what, I choose to embrace citizenship in this nation. They are, de facto, by fact of being born in this country, citizens of the nation. Now, there are certain privileges of being citizens that they don't yet have the right to because they aren't yet developed as they need to be. So we don't give three-year-olds the right to vote. Why? Well, just by natural law, understanding a three-year-old can't possibly begin to understand all that's going on in these arguments. Now, that argument can be made of many others today, but the point is, no child is of the capacity to engage in that type of understanding. And the same is true in God's kingdom. It doesn't take a child to grow and mature and to say, you know what, I'm going to join myself to this kingdom. By being brought to Christ, they are part of His kingdom. Well, then some say, well, if that's the case, then you're saying that children are saved. And we're saying, no, we're not. Because that's not what God's Word says. So think of this. There are parables in the Scriptures which tell us that the last day, what will be gathered out of the kingdom of God? Tares. It's not just that tares will be gathered out of the world, but out of the kingdom of God. And so you look, for instance, throughout Scripture, what do you see? You see there's a Jacob who's in God's kingdom. There's an Esau who's in God's kingdom. There's an Isaac in God's kingdom. There's an Ishmael in God's kingdom. But their being, as it were, citizens of that kingdom here does not mean that they are graciously and fully, as it were, citizens of that heavenly kingdom to come. What it does mean is, just like in natural things, civil things, they are afforded privileges for being citizens. So, a child in this land has privileges afforded to them by the rule of law. 
They have protections afforded to them. Is that abused? Of course it's abused. But there are nonetheless protections afforded to children here as citizens that aren't afforded to others. Why? What's the difference? They're citizens. Now, they may be in a family that despises the nation. They may be in a family that's not teaching them much. But by virtue of being a citizen, they are afforded those privileges. And the same is true of children in God's kingdom in this world. And so this is related to that teaching of the visible church in this world and the invisible. The visible is the believer and his children. They are in God's covenant. And yet we realize that not all who in this life are covenant members are true believers. John takes this up in 1 John when he says, they went from us. Notice they were among us. They went from us, but they were never of us. They were never truly of the stuff of gracious salvation. And the same is here. Christ is calling children to be brought into Him. Not that they would by that blessing be saved, but that they would by that blessing be given an assurance that all who trust in Him, yea, they trusting in Him, should indeed be blessed. So the same is true of the parallel regarding infant baptism or circumcision before it. We don't say that a child baptized is saved. We say a child baptized now has the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And now what has to take place? Well, the parents are to instruct them. The pastor is to preach to them. Elders are to visit them and train them up in the way. All of which is calling them to embrace that blessing which is extended unto them and placed upon them. This is what makes them proper subjects. If it were that this was a testimony that they're saved, that's a different thing. But it's not. It's a testimony that Christ is blessing them, declaring privileges to them, and holding forth His kingdom upon them. Notice then lastly, Christ's blessing, the way to pursue it. We can discern several things in the text. The first of which the parents and nurses discern the need that children have for Christ. There are things that children need and all the world realize this. They realize, you know what, children need a stable home. And you only need to look at much in our world today to see that when there's not a stable home, brokenness erupts. And it has oftentimes generational consequences for such breakdowns. And so the world realizes that. Even in our corrupt and wicked system in our own nation, the courts will acknowledge that it's best for a child to have both parents involved in that child's life. And so unless there are issues, they will give custodial rights to both parents. Now the courts can mess this up as they mess many other things up, but the point stands. The world sees that. The world sees that the, world, the children need food. Children need education. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even among professing Christians, you'll hear this expression, well, I'm not going to force them to some religion. I'm going to let them choose. You know, they're going to grow up and they're going to be brought to understand what they want to understand. This goes through the airwaves of the radio as like signs of maturity. And yet, the same parents will teach their children that they need to eat vegetables and fruit 
and protein and other things, they'll say, you know what, you can't just stay up till three in the morning and then have your normal day at school. They'll put other boundaries up in their life saying that you need to observe these things. Now we can talk about, you know, what needs to shift and whatever else, but these are basic things you need. Notice what these adults understand about the children. They see these children need Christ's blessing. And they don't say, well, you know, I see that they need it, so I'm just going to pray about it and so on. They literally take up these children and bring them to Christ. And they seek the Lord's blessing upon Him. This is the way of pursuing it. It's first discerning the need, and then with that, discerning the willingness of Christ, which is confirmed by Him Himself. So they come aware of covenant dealings of God, right? On the eighth day, the male child was to be circumcised and to receive in his own flesh the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, which Paul says is the sign and seal, the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So they discern that, and then it's confirmed. Christ himself of his own mouth says, allow these little ones to come unto me. Do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Here's the point. If we hesitate and we think, well, it would be good, but I'm not sure about Christ, if He's willing, then we'll stumble. But if we are persuaded that Christ is one who delights in pronouncing His blessing unto even our infants, we'll come heartily to Christ seeking the same. But notice fundamentally, they discern the need, they discern Christ's willingness, and it's confirmed to them, but they actually draw near to Christ. They encounter obstacles to it. The disciples, as it were, say no. But they draw near. They bring these children to Christ. And as they do, Christ, as it were, confirms and encourages them in that. Now, you and I, we don't have a physical location where we can say, there's Christ, and we're going to meet Him there. You know, We might later this week uh, say to a spouse or to a friend, you know, would you meet me for lunch or coffee or dessert or whatever else? Where do you want to meet? Well, let's meet at such and such restaurant at this time. And you guys go to that location and you meet with that person. Well, Christ has gone into heaven. He's no longer treading the things of this world by His feet. How is it then that we can draw near to Christ? Well, it's by the means by which He makes Himself known. And so, we read in John 14, 15, and 16, as well as 17, that Christ will be with us by His Spirit. So His Spirit abides with His people. We read that His Word, the Scriptures, are the very voice of God. Some say, well, you Protestants, you don't have a living voice of God. We've got an Apostle. And He, inspired of God, speaks the Word of God. And we say, are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you not understand the Bible? What is the Bible? The Bible is the very Word of the very living God. What do we have in having His Word? We have the voice of the living God. And so when His Word is read and when it's proclaimed, what do we have? We have the presence of God making Himself known by His Word. You know, we, we speak of things like, well, have you seen so-and-so lately and we say oh yeah i spoke with him yesterday 
And just that conveyance of, I spoke with him, has such intimacy. Yeah, I was with him. I knew him. We were together and so on. Well, every time we have the Word of God opened and read and proclaimed, God is speaking to us. Christ is speaking to us. What is it we do in prayer? The Spirit of God works within us. The Spirit of prayer and supplication is working within us to do what? To draw near. Think of the language of Hebrews 4. Drawing near to the throne of grace with boldness. Now, here I stand, and there you sit. And when we stand for prayer in a moment, we'll be in the same space that we are right now, physically. But what's going on in prayer is that our souls by the Spirit of God are being, as it were, brought into the presence of Christ. And we are communing with the ascended Savior, our great and high priest, so that our feet never lift from the ground, yet we are truly, really, personally, in the presence of Christ by His grace. We're with Him. What's the point of all this? Well, you can do with the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper as well. The point is, the means of grace are the means by which we hold personal fellowship with Christ today. This is not some theological point alone. It's a theological point that's founded upon the explicit teaching of God's Word. It's God's Word that is teaching us these things. So we can understand then, if we're to seek Christ's blessing, we're to come by His appointed means. We're to come by the means of prayer, by the means of His Word, by the means of the sacraments, to seek His blessing as He is instructed. And so when we do that, we're doing what is taking place in essence here. So literally, there's Christ in His incarnate ministries treading the, uh, the road to a certain place. And the people see this and they say, well, there's Jesus Christ. We're going to take our children to Him. How does that realize itself today? Where is Christ's Word read and preached? That's where Christ is. Where is prayer offered in the name of Christ Jesus? That's where Christ is. And you see, the point is, that's then where I'm going to bring my children that they may be blessed of Christ. Because it's by these means that He provides His blessing. Some say, well, I've done that. You know, I've prayed, I had them baptized, and yet they don't know the saving provision of such blessing. Maybe so. But you'll notice as well how the chapter opens. He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Well, can we not apply that to this very point as well? Have you brought your children to the Lord? Perhaps you can say, yes, I have. Well, then the question is, are you bringing your children to the Lord? And see, if we just say, well, I have, I've done it, but we don't say, I am, I'm doing it, then we're actually revealing, seeing something about our own hearts. Because the earnest desire for our children's good, whether personally our literal children and grandchildren, or corporately the children of our congregation, or broader still, the children of uh, the covenant of God's grace, if we are not bringing them by prayer and in our own influence to the means of grace, then we're actually seeing something of either our doubt or our lack of earnestness 
in seeking the same. Because if we realize they need Christ's blessing, Christ is willing to give it, then all within our influence and power is going to be put together to bring them unto Christ. Now, maybe we don't have the physical right to do so. Well, we can certainly spiritually bring them to the throne of grace and prayer any moment and every moment. And what's that doing? It's bringing our people, our children, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we do still have oversight. Well, if that's the case, we will bring them to Him without fail on every opportunity to hear the blessed words of Christ and to gain instruction in the way of truth. In other words, the way to pursuing it is a constant pursuit of seeking the Lord and His many blessings by the means of grace. Well, as we close, brethren, we close first by seeing the great privilege that has been afforded to us that Christ declares His willingness to receive our children unto Himself. And so we're to take our children to Christ by prayer, by the preaching of His Word, by baptism, by family devotions, and so on. All of those are, as it were, ways by which we're bringing our children unto the Lord. If you're a grandparent, and you have even so much as five minutes with your grandchildren on any given moment, you ought to take time and prioritize this their greatest need. More than knowing grandma and grandpa give me sweets or privileges or whatever else, they love me in some outward way and they give me big hugs, they need to see in your very life that your greatest concern for them, your greatest desire for them, and their greatest need is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So you pray with them. Okay, you know, we only have a brief time, but let's pray. And you, as it were, take them up to the throne of grace and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, would you have mercy upon my child or grandchild and bless them unto the saving exercise of faith. See, we continue to press these things and take full advantage of the privilege afforded to us. In other words, we don't just say, well, I did that back then. Every opportunity given to us is a fresh undertaking of bringing them to the Lord for His blessing. I might say a word based on this to the children. There are young people here who have been brought. They're, in fact, here. And so they are brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a privilege that is given to each of you. And the question that will be answered in due time for all eternity is, in being given the privilege, did you take advantage of it? Did you receive by faith the blessing of Christ? You might say, well, when I was baptized, I didn't remember much about it. I don't know anything but what was told to me of it. Well, what would these infants have known except what is recorded here and what their parents would have told them later? You know, Joseph, when you were six months old, we took you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was this moment when the disciples said no, but Christ said bring Him. And He took you up in His arms and He blessed you. It's not just sentimentality in a fine moment. It comes now with the leverage of that divine call saying, Christ, the Son of God incarnate, has come to you and said, He is pleased to save you. He is pleased to instruct you in the way. He is pleased to forgive your sins. He is pleased to give you the kingdom of God. 
Will you turn from that? Will you turn from the tremendous privilege of the Son of God coming to you and taking you up in His arms and saying, these blessings are for you particularly? See, children will say, well, you know, I've got friends in this world and I want to go and play this sport and that sport and do these things and go on this trip and that trip and do these things and hang out here and hang out there and read these things and watch those things. All of the things, why? Because they consider them privileges. But the greatest privilege is that the Lord Jesus Christ comes near and says, I am a Savior for you. And He calls us to Himself. Here this privilege is just as was given to Esau. And what did Esau do with his privilege? The birthright. He sold it for a morsel of food. And when he realized what he had done, and he sought a place for repentance with tears, we're told that he found it not. He perished having despised the privilege. You young people are in a world that despises the privilege, that talks down the privilege and talks up worldly things. And the temptation is for you to hearken to that while you maintain some semblance of religiosity in this world. And yet what Christ is calling you is to forsake everything else and to embrace Him as the One who is good, gracious, and a Savior even for you. That privilege will either be to your eternal rejoicing or to your eternal damnation. And so, brethren, see in the Word of Christ His great provision of hope, for of such is the kingdom of God. Would you stand with me then for prayer?